You're listening to the Sight and Sound podcast about our video Fight Fest, which took place from the 23rd to the 27th of August 2018 at Cineworld and Prince Charles in Leicester Square with me, Virginie Selavi and Anton Bittel and Kim Newman. So in the amazing selection of films on the offer this year, I think there was one particular theme that came across, which was quite an original theme, which was spiked drinks or drugs. And I suppose the weird thing about this theme is that normally today, when we think about spiked drinks, we think of something like rohypnol, something that will make the victim fall asleep for the purposes of rape or abuse. But in fact, in all of these films, the drug was a hallucinogen and was instead being used to sort of unleash the appetitive orgiastic, id-driven mm. side of characters. So it's almost as though these films are showing that beneath people's veneer of civility, they harbour some rather unusual and dark desires. I guess the, the biggest film that featured this was the closing film, Gaspar Noé's Climax, um, in which a group of about 20 dancers uh, gather for um, a rehearsal and then a party, and someone spikes their drink, and they all very slowly over the course of the film start reaching a, pink, a peak and then having something of a come down. And it's a, a film um, beautifully shot. It takes its time to build, introduces all the characters one by one, shows them interacting with one another. Uh, most of the sequences, certainly at the beginning of the film, are very long takes with incredible camera work, a very mobile camera. And slowly but surely, all of the characters regress. And that is the, the pleasure of the film, is, is watching this decline. But we also have a couple of other, uh, as it were, smaller films, uh, Ravers and Secret Santa, which remind me of the way that Roger Corman would, if somebody made Jurassic Park, he'd get Carnosaur out. You know? And I'm sure that the makers of Ravers and Secret Santa probably didn't even know Gaspar Noe was working on this, but they feel like the, the cut-down B-picture uh, vest pocket version of the, of the same story. In fact, Secret Santa is even about the same drink, I mean, assuming that Sangria and Punch are essentially the same. And Ravers 2, which is about a spiked energy drink handed out at a, an underground rave, in all these cases, the drink isn't just a hallucinogen, it's a truth serum. And the first thing that happens is people start speaking their minds. There's a very long sequence in the, the Noe where basically it's sort of like a Neil Laboot play just dropped in the middle where people talk about sex and relationships in a very brutal, frank manner. And then the, the crazy stuff starts. The retrospective section of Fright Fest, which was a little undernourished this year, included um, Jeff Lieberman's Blue Sunshine from 1978, which is one of the great 1970s sort of acid freak-out horror movies. Um, I suppose underneath all of these is, is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's one of the, the classic horror stories. And I've got, I have to say that Climax as a depiction of the, the hallucinogenic drug experience, is about on a par with those late 1960s awful warning films. Nobody in these movies has a good trip. Right? No, nobody has their mind expanded. They all become raving, frothing maniacs. In, in Blue Sunshine, they go bald as well. Um, but it is, in, in fact, strangely, the, the most interesting reaction is in the, the smallest of the films, Ravers, where... They become sort of zombies, but instead of that thing of, of droning brains, brains, their slogan is more, more. And you see them becoming 
more hung up on whatever it is they're hung up, including, in fact, the drug dealer is hung up on getting more money because he's already got enough drugs. And I think in ravers, the substance which they take requires another drug to have been been taken for it to have an effect, and it exaggerates whatever that drug Mm. would do to your system. And there's a sense in ravers that you're really watching the kind of behaviour that you see every Saturday night in, yeah. like, in the streets of Britain, except just slightly exaggerated. Yeah. But this is what's interesting about this theme, because it is very 70s, 60s, mm. 70s theme, isn't it? This anxiety about this permissive use of drugs mm-hmm. and what's going to happen to all those well-behaved young people yeah. if they take drugs. So what is it? What's it's, your It's strange to think of Gaspar Noé as a conservative return. filmmaker, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, uh, it, it's right. I mean, I, in, I, it occurs to me that he reminds me a bit of Michael Haneke. If Michael Haneke is Dr. Jekyll, Gaspar Noe is Mr. Hyde. You know, they both have that sort of wagging your finger and telling you how awful you are thing. And yet one is all about repression and precision and, and the other is all about explosion. Although, in fact, Noe is a very controlled filmmaker. He choreographs chaos in a way that maybe some of the other uh, movies we're looking at aren't as skillful at. But other films have a kind of B-picture verve that maybe recommends them. I mean, in in a a Fright Fest context, it's almost like I find it more interesting looking at the the, the smaller films, the more marginal, the neglected ones, to, to look at the kind of the crazy stuff that's going on there. So I don't know exactly what he meant to do, and it's true that it's kind of weird to find this bizarre take on drugs from Gaspar Noé that is more mm. 70s than what you would expect mm. from him, but I think what he's interested in always in his films is to plunge you in this kind of immersive experience. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, portraying people are mm. tripping out of their heads is kind of a good way of providing mm. that, but it felt to me like had a lot of sympathy for what he was trying to do, but it felt like it, it didn't quite succeed in the sense that instead of instead of so visually it was an amazing experience, and yet there was an element that was quite dull, that was quite repetitive mm-hmm. and a bit boring, as if you were actually watching yeah. people at a party doing drugs and you were the only sober person in the room. So he doesn't quite manage to take you with him in mm-hmm. that experience. Yeah, he is very much a look look down the microscope filmmaker, isn't he? And but then again, isn't that sort of dullness very appropriate? I mean, even the the use of nineties music with that yeah incessant repetitive drone. It's risky. I mean, and there are, they're not so much dull spots, but they are flatline spots in the movie, isn't it? Um, And there was a failure to portray what it actually feels or um, to portray the experience of being on drugs from the inside. Mm. It's very much a film from the outside. You watch people Mm. as they are experiencing Mm. things. Yeah, and many of the other movies that we looked at, if they have hallucinations, you are in them. The camera hallucinates. Yeah, you're with the mind of the the crazed people. Although in most of these sort of Spike Drinks movies, your viewpoint character is the one who's immune or the one who doesn't drink or uh, the one who holds back. Right, well, among the types of characters we had this year, we had two that were really prominent. The first one was ghosts that are not what you think. Um, so we saw that, for instance, in The Witch in the Window. The Witch in the Window, I, I'm directed by Andy Miss and also written by him, I think I think was probably my favourite film of the festival. It's in my top two or three, I think. Yeah. And it, it tells the story of a father and the son from whom he's become estranged, spending the summer for a short time together, rebuilding 
um, a ruined farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and becoming aware that there's a female presence sharing the house with them. And the way in which it is a sort of ghost or a witch, Mm. depends how you Mm. view it, but there's definitely someone there with them called Lydia. And the way in which she is introduced into scenes is disarmingly literal in that Mm. she is just there. And at first you don't notice her because she will be hidden in a corner or in the background. And then suddenly she is right in the middle of the scene with them. And whereas a lot of ghost films will play with this notion that one character can see the ghost and no one else will believe them. In this scene, unusually, um, both the characters together are very much experiencing at first hand the presence of this ghost. And the question of what she represents, I suppose, is an open one, but she certainly is in part a kind of figuration of the dysfunction within the family unit. The father is trying to mend his family. He's trying to build this house so that his family will move together back into it, even though he's really separated from his wife, and it seems unlikely they ever will get back together. And in hoping to form a safe space for his family, he finds that he needs to engage quite directly with this dark presence in the house. It's a very strange one. It's quite an emotional ride, because I I did find the scenes in the house with Lydia incredibly creepy, much more than I normally would for a ghost film. But it's also a truly poignant film. It wasn't a dry eye in the house by its end. It's it's quite an enduring film, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. it really is about that parental anxiety. And you can Mm -hmm. definitely relate to that, even if you're not a parent. Mm -hmm. And it's about what I find interesting in the film. I didn't like it as much as you because I thought there were some things that weren't quite fully worked out for me anyway. But what definitely resonates is that anxiety about the modern world and how you cannot protect your children from it. And of course, in any kind of period, you cannot protect your children fully. But the particular types of anxiety that are expressed in the film, I thought, were really quite poignant. I noticed, again, it's when you see all these films together, you start seeing themes. But The Witch in the Window epitomised the theme that we had a whole bunch of films have where... People go away to repair their family relationships and then are plunged into spookiness or violence or horror. Um, He's Out There, which is a kind of slasher stalker movie, does that. Hell is Where the Home Is, which is a home invasion film, does that. The several Going Away for Christmas films, Await Further Instructions and Secret Santa, again, all do that. They're all sort of families who are having issues or problems who think that by going to a space they have for themselves will be able to solve it. And then that seems to bring on an external or an internal threat. Maybe it's just a very appealing storyline, but it is one that, I mean, we've said in previous years that it's strange that one storyline sort of bubbles up. It's like we seem over the weekend to have watched 20 films which start with a car drawing up to a house by a lake, yeah, and a family getting out, and then hints that there's something along. We even had a couple of, you know, Lost Kid in the Wood films, it seemed to be. And the, the character of the ghost, which is not quite what you think, we find that again connected to children and uh, parents in Tigers Are Not Afraid. Tigers Are Not Afraid is Isa Lopez's film set in modern-day Mexico, and it concerns children who have been orphaned, and they become street children because of the drug war, and um, the central character constructs a way of looking at the horrors around her through fairy tale imagery. And it's one of those great films that constantly offsets fantasy and reality Mm. and you need both to make sense Mm. of the story you can't kind of decode one through the Mm. other you literally need both or you're never going to understand 
the trajectory of the story. Yeah. The thing I liked about it, it was unlike other films that have this theme, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is one that comes up, there wasn't a sense that the fantasy world was an escape or an allegory. It says that you know, fairy tales are full of stories in which children are suddenly orphaned or taken off in the woods to be murdered. It's like... These kids are living a fairy tale, but they're not living a Disney fairy tale. They're living the actual stories of Snow White or Sleeping Beauty that were done before they put in all the songs and the cute animals. Yeah, it's the truly scary stuff of fairy tales. And yet, it's a very humane film, which is sort of unusual for this weekend. And, and I'm not a weepy viewer, but once mm. again, this film made me cry, and it's quite strange seeing two films at Fright Fest that yeah. had that yeah. effect. I thought that one was definitely one of my top three, this one. Mm. Also because the performances from the children were incredible, mm-hmm. and I think it works because of that as well, because you get a lot of heart from that. And her filming is amazing, and like mm. you, I thought the way she mixes fancy and reality is really, really impressive. And you couldn't help but think of Guillermo del Toro mm. watching this film. Mm. But for me, the reference is maybe more The Devil's Backbone, because I think you get more of um, that mix of the a terrible, difficult historical mm. reality and the fairy tale as, as the way the children experience it. Yeah. But there's a difference between a historical horrible reality and a contemporary horrible reality. In Del Toro's films, there's even a sort of nostalgia for the Spanish Civil War, isn't there? There's still a sort of thing, it's in the past, it's over. Whereas here, it's so immediate and so present and so unresolved. And you certainly see the horror yeah. more yeah. Uh, than in mm. The Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. And also, in the sort of type of ghosts, but it also had monsters we had terrified terrified is unusual in that it's a film that seems to be about ghostbusters but Mm. they're really just ghost watchers and Mm. when they're confronted with the i guess it's an evil they don't know what to do beyond observant which becomes their downfall one of the things that makes it confusing and confusing in a good way in a disorienting fashion is that it keeps flipping time frames and also switching locations it's set on three different houses on one street all of which are haunted by an incident that never really makes sense. And it's that lack of making sense is precisely what makes the film creepy. I think it's also a flaw in the film, and it's actually quite a, it's quite a dangerous line for the, the director to be running, because after a while, you get the sense that he could have begun and ended anywhere. Mm. The story is infinitely mm. extendable. It doesn't really have a beginning or an end, and this makes the film feel somewhat incoherent. Oh, you see, um, for me, that's the strength of the film. Well, but precisely, <laughs> but that co- incoherence is also the source of, mm. of why it's so uncanny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. I think, for me, that's why it's the best film the, of the festival, because it's precisely because it, it refuses to give you any kind of answer or resolution, and I think that's why it's so creepy. I think it's both very creepy, it works on that pure, horrific level where you feel really uncomfortable, And it also works as a very intelligent take on what is horror and how you frighten people. And if you look at the way the film is made, every time, every single sort of convention, every scene where you think, oh yeah, I know where this is going to go, it doesn't go that way. And it wrong-foots you all the time. And the end is very open and kind of almost circular in a way. And this is also about this um, idea that none of the people who represent some kind of rational authority, the police or the, the scientists, uh, or paranormal scientists, none of them have an answer. None of them can resolve either a crime or the paranormal uh, phenomenon that's taking place. And I thought that was very clever, and that makes it 
particularly unsettling. I don't have much to add to that, to be honest. I thought it was one of the creepier films of the weekend, but also sort of interesting just in the ways it fit into a recent run of films about ghosts and paranormal activity. And that it did strike me as being a summation of its genre rather than particularly a great addition to it. It does have yeah. one sequence, which is a very direct allusion to the film Paranormal yeah, Activity, yeah. where the figure stands yeah. recorded by video over a bed at night and doesn't move. Yeah, but it does something else with it. But then it does do something yeah. else with it. Yeah. We'll use that on this one, I think. Right, and then the other type of character uh, that we stood out, <laughs> yeah. quite surprisingly, is nuns. Yeah. So we had a lot of nuns. Yeah, in it's interesting. Edition. I'm going to refer to two films that weren't at Fright Fest, that are kind of the opposite poles. I mean, actually three films, because we, Jacques Rivette's film, The Nun, was re-released at the same time that we have the, the franchise horror movie, The Nun, came out. And there was a, uh, a recent French art movie called called The Apparition, which was about investigating miracles in one world. And it seemed to me that those represent, as it were, the, the real exploitation, ordinary horror version of this story and the more high-flown sort of religious inquisition version. But in the middle, we had the films we saw at Fright Fest, particular Luciferina... Um, St. Agatha. St. Agatha. The Devil's Doorway. And The Devil's Doorway. And... A, one or two others featured sort of religious themes or and particularly Catholic themes. It seems to be that this thing and so somehow are nuns now officially the scariest people on earth. Uh, this, this is a bit seventies again. Yes, like, what's true. Going on? It, yeah. And none of them were there's this thing called nunsploitation, and none of them fell into that except maybe Luciferina a bit, which had a very sort of seventies demonic vibe to it. They were all about the injustices of religion. I think probably there's an obvious connection with you know, recent real-world scandals in, in uh, the Catholic and other churches around the world. And certainly that's directly addressed in St. Agatha and uh, the, the Devil's Doorways, Devil's Doorways where they, they're both set in the past and deal with historical abuses in the church, which resonate in a kind of supernatural way. It's the sense that... In 70s sort of devil movies, exorcist-type movies, of which there are still around, the church is, though occasionally criticised, still firmly the, uh, on the side of the angels, literally. The good, the good guys are the church. You had all these films in which sort of big stars played priests who fought demons, and now we, we kind of worried about priests. I think John Landis said that you know, if his daughter was possessed, the last thing he'd do is lock her in a room with a couple of Catholic priests. <laughs> yeah, um, and certainly the way that these stories resonate and the imagery, I mean, it is, we see a lot of films in which uh, in the opening titles, all the T's are, cross, are crucifixes, you know, and, and there's liturgical music and, and robes and vestments and, and sort of this side of the ritual nature of horror, which is, is part of most horror stories have a ritual element, but you do get this sense that this is currently a big theme. I don't know if it's because of the, the recurrent scab of child abuse scandals in, in the church, which seems to bubble up over and over and not go away. And that's actually the theme of these movies, is that these scandals cannot be covered. And also, while Luciferina, I think, is a different kind of film from the other three that we saw, St. Agatha, The Devil's Doorway and Heretics, they're all set in the past. Mm. And they're all set within, obviously, within all-female environments. Mm. 
St. Agatha. Of, yeah, they're kind of women in prison movies as well. They are yeah. kind of women in prison. I mean, St. Agatha, actually, I think the opening line of the film is, get me out. Mm. And it's delivered by a woman who's trapped in a coffin and is trying to escape and cannot. And in a sense, um, what we're looking at is the historical abuse of women and especially fallen women but also and this is pre-women's lib they're all set specifically before there is a women's liberation movement but at the same time there's this um, rather unusual undercurrent because there's a notion that there's a perverted sisterhood which is part of the women's problem that women are actually harming each other which leads us quite nicely to our final theme those houses which were mostly female Right. Well, actually, this year at Fright Fest, there were several locations that, that kind of came to the fore. One of them, which Kim has mentioned already, is the instead of having the, the cabin in the woods, which is a very cliched horror location, we had the, the rather plush holiday house by the lake. This is something that recurred in a number of films. Another thing was um, a shift from houses to apartments. That quite a lot of apartments featured. But in particular, the notion of houses or homes being treated by characters as dollhouses, as places of childish play uh, where other characters could be manipulated mm. and infantilized and i think we saw this well it's actually in a number of films it's um, very explicitly in john knautz's the cleaning lady but i think it probably reached its peak for me in, in another of my favorite films of the festival braid by mitzi perone braid is it's a very hard film to categorize because it just isn't really like anything mm. i've seen before but it's um it concerns three women who've known one another since they were children and who have become locked into a game that they played as children that emerged from a kind of primal scene of i don't want to call it abuse because it's a bit misleading but a primal mm. scene nonetheless and which they're unable to shake off and as they continue as adults, they return to this game periodically and continue to play it and continue to take on roles that they apportion to one another as children, the role of mother, daughter and doctor. And they refuse to let anybody else in on their game. It's, it's a kind of it's a very exclusive game played in this beautiful but slightly gothic mansion. And as they, as they engage in this game, you as a viewer lose all sense of space and time and all sense of what is real and what is just play, because um, a number of extremely violent actions take place, but after a while you're not really sure whether this is in someone's mind or whether it's been played out in real life. Well, what's interesting is that it's both a place that is safe and very menacing, very dangerous, but you have both aspects for all three characters. Mm. And what I also find really interesting in that is the way the power shifts from one to the other, and again, there are assumptions. You, you think you know what the relationship is, and in fact, it's much more complicated than that between the three women. I thought that was really well done. That was one of my favourite films yeah. as well. It did remind me of a, a kind of 60s, 70s strand of filmmaking that would include, actually, Robert Altman's Three Women, uh, but also Freddie Francis' Mumsy Nanny, Sonny and Girly, yeah, where strange people go to isolated locales to play out role-playing games. And there are even sort of slasher movies on, on that thing. And we saw as a bunch of other movies in which real houses were dolls' houses. One of my favourite films was, was The Laplace's Demon, which is sort of a parody of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, but uh, embedded with mathematical theory and uh, prediction and chess games there. But there were several other movies in which we had 
people literally playing with other people, literally using other people as dolls. Pascal Logier's uh, Incident in the Ghost Land, his follow-up to Martyrs, I think was the bluntest version of that in, in the, the, the villains there, play with two young girls as if they were dolls, i.e. You know, dangling them by their feet and, and sort of banging them against walls. In, uh, to my mind, a, we've heard that story before, <laughs> come up with something else, please. Uh, view. But there were other... Story. I mean, even um, Await Further Instructions, kind of a science fiction film where a television set issues orders to a family over Christmas, gave us that. Oh, and uh, Piercing, uh, which I think is, again, one of the finest uh, movies here, which is another weird charade of a role-playing. And that fits into a a strand of movies we've had recently, including um, Perfect Thread, of people actually forming perfect relationships which are also perfectly perverse. And um, piercing begins and ends with external shots of apartment buildings at night. Mm. It's a very noirish image mm. and the camera uh, tilts up and zooms in. And although they're very well rendered, you can tell that they're models, that mm. you're not looking at a real building. And that immediately sets the mm. tone for something like a Doll's House movie. Yeah. I believe oh. there are no actual exterior shots yeah. that aren't the models, which gives you this sort of real sense of enclosure and, and of play. And, you know, maybe the sense that films are kind of like dolls' houses. <laughs> and it does have, it has the same kind of sadomasochistic dynamic as Phantom Thread, except mm. presented very much as a kind of slasher genre mm. film. Yeah. So that's um, very unusual for someone. I think. Yeah, I, I, again, it's a remarkable picture. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end our 2018 podcast for Sight and Sound on our video fight fest.